Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of the MBIT Podcast, and I'm your host, Seamus Medan. I started this podcast at 15 years old in December of 2020 to bring personal finance education to the next generation. Now, I am 16 years old, and the podcast has evolved to interviewing entrepreneurs, VCs, GPs, and founders of public companies, all of which are designed to delve into insights that have not been shared elsewhere for the next generation of those interested in business. Recently, I ventured into the VC space as a venture fellow at Blitzscaling Ventures, which is backed by the co-founder of LinkedIn, and I am interviewing those farther along in their journey to learn more on everything that I and the audience is curious about. If any of the above sounds interesting to you, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. And now, back to the show. So today we have a very special guest, Paige Van Doherty, who is a GP in her 20s of Behind Genius Ventures, an early stage VC fund. So first off, thank you, Paige, for taking the time to hop on the podcast. How are you doing today? Of course, I'm doing well, Seamus. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm super excited to chat a bit and also hear more about your interests in venture. I appreciate it. We'll look forward to diving into some more conversation here. So let's go ahead and get started with how you got interested in venture capital. What was your journey like? Yeah, I mean, I joke that I got into venture because managing rappers didn't work out. When I was like going through school, I studied mechanical engineering and computer science, but I had this feeling that I was just never going to be a 10x coder. I spent a lot of time in the library crying. The journey of programming is just like incredibly emotional swings. Super exciting when you get things right, but a lot of the times you're not right. But I found a passion for interviewing music artists, mainly because I couldn't afford to go to as many shows as I wanted to. So I had cold email managers and similar to you're doing on this podcast. So I'd ask if I could interview these artists and I got to interview really awesome artists. I think like some of my favorites were Sean Witherspoon, who's a designer at round two in Hollywood and helped design my favorite, like Air Max shoe, Nick Caution, who was touring with the Flatbush Zombies at the time. And just like a bunch of really interesting people about their creative processes. And then I binge watched Silicon Valley my junior year of college. I think I was sick and I had a seven-day free HBO trial. So those two things combined in a whirlwind of Silicon Valley. And I really hadn't seen strong female role models in venture before then. I think the overarching rap that venture gets in mainstream media is quite negative. But honestly, like through that show, it is satirical and there are like a lot of funny situations that happen in it. But for me, seeing two young women as role models in that was really incredible. And so I, when I was 19, I went to this like high global leader summit and I wrote my goals down. Like my purpose in life was to educate the next generation of venture investors. And I wanted to build a venture firm. I wanted to write a book and I wanted to be on Forbes 30 under 30. So fast forward three years and I was sitting, being interviewed by the Forbes team about my journey to building Behind Genius Ventures, which is an early stage venture firm focused on investing in the future of work and the future of play, how I got into building BGV through writing a children's book about venture. And so it's been really interesting to step into a position that I had so much interest in and talked to like hundreds of venture capitalists about what they were doing and all of their lessons. So that's been my journey and like kind of the spark that I got into is I loved like talking to creative people and artists about how they built their careers, both as like a media company and then also as a creator. And so 
that interest carried over into speaking with early stage founders about how they were leveraging similar characteristics to build, you know, generation defining companies. So I've been really lucky to work with great founders, companies like Palette and Beacons, Italy and Last Game Board. We've invested in 30 companies across Fund One so far. So it's been really incredible to, you know, feel that spark that I felt when I was interviewing musicians when I was 17 again. Damn, that's a bit more about my spark and what got me started in venture. Sounds like a really interesting path. And you mentioned how you were cold emailing musicians and were able to get in touch with some of them. How has your cold emailing skills that you use for musicians been useful when raising money for your own fund and cold emailing LPs? Yeah. Honestly, I would joke, I was joking with my friend, like my cold emailing game has gone kind of weak. I feel like my task <laughs> list was way lower when I was in college. So I would spend like literally five hours crafting a cold email. Like I'd research the person. I'd find this random fact from like 2011 that they only talked about on this one podcast. And then I'd write them a cold email. Like, hey, I loved what you talked about. I think there's a lot of value in this. You know, by the way, I saw your artists in San Diego. I'd love to interview them. Here's some snippets from previous interviews that I've done. And then I would follow up like eight times. I worked at a growth <laughs> equity fund in college and they taught me like, I was smiling and dialing. So they taught me that if the person doesn't respond like it's up to you to follow up seven times and then you can say that they haven't responded. But until that point, everyone has a really busy inbox and chances are they just missed your email and, or they're waiting for you to follow up. And now I would say like throughout fundraising for a fund one, I relied pretty heavily on, I was like very like email first when it came to fundraising. And so I'd email folks that I had met originally through Twitter and give them a bit of context on why I thought they'd resonate with what we were working on at BGV. Some of my background as both a content creator on Twitter and writing Seed to Harvest. And then also some of the original deals that we had done and LPs that we'd have. So like Bain, Capital Ventures, Tribe Capital, Bonfire Ventures, Bobby Goodlot, who's the founding partner at Form Capital, Johnny Steindorf, who's at Distributed Global, Johnny Leftcourt, Katie Stanton, a whole bunch of like really great folks. So I just basically highlight the companies that we're looking at, the folks that were in our community and trusted us to make decisions on the capital they were entrusting us with. And I mean, I think it was pretty well received. There's some folks that I still haven't actually talked on a call, but they were just like very email first. And so I ended up like committing and yeah, I mean, we have 120 LPs, so it's bound to happen, but it's been really nice to develop deep relationships with some of the folks that are investors. Yeah, I totally agree, especially your point on getting information and complimenting people on the other end of the cold email. When I'm writing cold emails over here at Embit, I've written over 100 plus cold emails. I've gotten responses from pretty cool people, and especially I got Spencer Raskoff, who's a former CEO of Zillow on the podcast the other week. But I think finding that small tidbit of information and complimenting on it makes it more relatable than all the other spam and cold emails that they get in the inbox and really separates you out from the rest of the yeah. emails. Yeah, you had a great one. I think like some of the things I really liked about your cold email were you introduced yourself, like coming off the bat, you talked about how you've grown Embit. It's like the top 2.5% of podcasts. You talked about some of the folks you've interviewed and then you had a short ask. Like you were like, oh, would you be interested in hopping on for a few minutes? Just discuss how you started BGB and then let me know what your thoughts are. I like that it was like super short to the point. You proved that you had like traction. So yeah, great job with that. 
Yeah, I appreciate it. I know when I get some of my cold emails over here, when I get inbound for Embit, for guests, if they get way too long, they're actually more painstakingly to read and I end up putting a star on it. And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll come back I'll later come back day. to that. Sometimes yeah. I forget. So you're over at BGV. What is your biggest goal at your firm? I mean, I would say my overarching goal is like to educate the next generation of venture investors. So I concentrate a lot on writing content about what it's like to be an emerging fund manager. My partner, Josh, and I recorded a recent podcast. I'll send it to you so you can link it in the show notes about yeah. our learnings from Fund One as emerging managers. And I think that I was talking to someone today and they were like, oh, I'm hesitant about starting a venture fund. And I was like, oh, what are your main hesitations around it? And they were talking about one, I don't know if I can fundraise like up to the level that I want to. And two, I don't know that I'm going to see the deal flow that I want to. And I think that a lot of the educational content that I put out is more helping people understand the framing of, of course, you're not going to have confidence doing this. Like the only way that you build confidence in doing that is like, actually going through the motions. And it's really difficult to do that unless you're doing angel investing or syndicate investing. Those still have different fundraising dynamics. It's really difficult to build confidence before you do it. And I think it was really helpful early on in my journey to talk to other fund managers who are like, yeah, like I still get nervous when I'm doing this, or I'm still learning about different financial architecture and like things like that. And so I think that's been my biggest overarching mission. And then at BGV, in terms of scaling the firm, I think we have a really unique opportunity to build a next generation media company that basically informs the early stage ecosystem on different trends that we're seeing. Like I'm 23, so I'm Gen Z. And I remember one fund manager was like, yeah, you got to stop saying your agent pitches. And I was like, Got it. And then I never <laughs> said it anymore. And then I was honestly like, you know, I think it gives us like a really unique perspective in terms I of like so too, yeah. what my friends are doing. Like I'm not asking my kids like what's cool or whatever. Like right. I'm experiencing this. And so I want to build a really thoughtfully research-driven firm. And so some of the things that I'm thinking about hiring is like the two core aspects of BGV are content and community. And so On the content side, thinking through how can we improve the quality and throughput of the content. So two of the things that I think about are having a really great editorial team that's helping with like the infrastructure of editing, producing, basically like allowing the folks that are either writing the content or doing the interviews to be just the talent because it's really difficult. I was doing the podcast by myself. It's called Seed to Harvest, but I was doing it by myself for the first season. It was really challenging to do scheduling and producing and writing (laughs) questions, like all the stuff that you're doing right now. And so building out a really great editorial team. And then the second aspect of that would be building out a really thoughtful written research investment team. And so one of the things that I think about is I've really benefited from being able to develop my own like independent thinking around the companies that we want to invest in as a fund manager with like check writing agency. So how I think about bringing up like the next generation of investors within BGV is I want folks to spend, you know, a a year and a half or something just doing really deep research on specific areas that are super interesting to them without, and then growing into a check writing role where they've had the ability to see what's going on in the ecosystem and really get a feel for it and then have the ability to grow into a check writing role. And I think that yeah, we're just in a really interesting position from the content perspective, just because that's like what I've grown up in this industry right. doing. And I think that 
there's a lot of like recent entrants who I'm super, I am super excited about that are doing similar things. Brie Kimmel is like a big role model of mine. She's been really awesome in this journey to ask questions to, and she's been super supportive. And then on the other side is community. So how do we use technology to supplement the community that we built both from a founder and investor perspective? And so building out someone who is either like someone or software that's like continuing to make relationships within our portfolio and LP base. So one of the things that I think about a lot is how do we provide value both to our LPs and our founders at the same time? So some of the things I've started out doing or building a co-investor concierge where I have folks that are like, hey, I want to share deal flow. I'm like, awesome. Here's an Airtable link. Please fill it out. It's like check size, sweet spot, sector, stage. And then when our portfolio companies or a company that we're evaluating is raising, I'll send that company out to them. So I know it's a really curated opportunity for them. And then I'll also do it the other way around where I have a list of portfolio companies that are actively raising, and then I'll be able to to send that list out to someone who might ask who's raising within your portfolio. I can super easily pull it up if I'm on a conversation with other fund managers or partners or whatever. So that's like a bit of context, like content and community are really at the core of what we do. And so I want to build out a really thoughtfully scaled next generation media company and scale the community that we have with the same like authenticity that we've started with. Yeah. And like a billion dollars in seven to 10 years. (laughs) Yeah. I'm going to put that out there so I can come back to this one. Yeah. It's a good note. And also, by the way, I think for example, we've seen people like Harry Stebbings that have been taking advantage of mm-hmm. TikTok and Redpoint Ventures has also been taking advantage of it with Red Woodbury. But yeah, on TikTok and other short form media content, we've seen like the hashtag founder has over a quarter billion views and then hashtag investor has over a billion views and then hashtag entrepreneur has over 22 billion views. So how do you plan to take advantage of these next generation apps to reach the next generation of founders? Yeah, it's a good question. So I like started my career basically as a creator. I joked that I like shit posted my way into it. I was just like writing a bunch <laughs> of stuff on Twitter where I was like, this is super interesting to me. And it would be a thread about like woodworking or masterclass. And I think that Twitter has been one of my favorite platforms because I'm a writer at heart. That's what I wanted to be when I grew up. But I've really enjoyed getting into video content. I think it adds a nuance, audio especially, because you can listen to audio. This is a very intimate discussion. You know, like someone's going to be listening to this and walking their dog or like having a moment or watching the sunset. And that's really difficult to replicate versus sitting on your couch and watching a video of us. Shout out if you are, but (laughs) (laughs) that's like a different level of commitment. And so I think that the short form video is a really interesting bridge over that. So actually I have a task on my calendar to make a TikTok. I was just, it's a really great tech crunch article written by Dom, I believe. Yeah. And she was asking me about like my plans for TikTok, but I, we have, we've been doing YouTube shorts for the podcast, which has been actually really great because similarly to how TikTok like basically gives you additional views on the algorithm at the start in 2019, which is when I started like my personal TikTok. And that's happening now on YouTube shorts. And they're like really heavily pushing that on the platform. And there's been some pretty crazy stats around like now that's starting to be a majority of their watch time is YouTube shorts. So we've been concentrating on that because I think that there's like a heavier push from the platform as a whole. Whereas on TikTok, I think that 
it's a lot easier to get views, but there's an ephemerality in the audience that you build because those folks will watch one video and then they're like, oh, I'm going to subscribe. And then they'll go through a bunch of stuff. And so I think that for me, having a really engaged audience that's super involved, like I'd rather have, you know, I think I'm at like 30K followers on Twitter and I'm, I've seen other accounts grow quicker and I could post like more random memes or like shit posts, but then <laughs> the quality of the audience gets diluted. So that's something I think a lot about as a creator is like the quality of the audience that I'm building. So yeah, I'm like Paige Pandorty on YouTube. I have 80 subscribers now. So the quality of the audience is high so far. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. Especially, you know, I was talking to Michael Sikand. He's the creator and founder of Our Future, which is like mm-hmm. short form media content for TikTok and YouTube yeah, I shorts. Just, I was just looking at their Twitter yesterday. I actually sent it in our Slack and I was like, I really love this guy's content. Yeah. yeah, it's really good. But one of the challenges when we're on the meeting that he said was actually converting people from TikTok and bringing them over to other, other platforms. Super right? hard. So, yeah, TikTok is like a crazy ephemeral platform where you can build like massive audiences. But someone posted about like hosting a TikTok meetup and they had a million followers on TikTok and no one showed up. Oh, and wow. I felt so <laughs> bad. But I think that YouTube, like I go back again and again. So I think YouTube and podcasts build really strong connections. Like I went to the All In Summit and everyone was like, I love the pod. Like you feel very connected. And so I think long form content breeds that like type of familiarity and intimacy that I, short term videos, I think really great top of funnel though. Yeah, I agree. I think even one of the things that I've used to start growing my podcast is when I appeared on the Investing for Beginners podcast, which is one of the Mm -hmm. top investing podcasts and just appearing on other types of podcasts or they're all podcast listeners. So they'll merge into other podcasts and explore other podcasts way easier than if you advertised it on TikTok or YouTube Shorts. So their audience is already there when you're advertising on other podcasts where it's not yeah. on uh, something like TikTok. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, I don't know about you, but I feel, I was like spending a lot of time on TikTok. And I think that getting away from it was really healthy for me. And so I switched to more long form content, like audiobooks. I've been yeah. listening to Ian Barnes's The Player of Games, which is a sci-fi book set in post-scarcity society. Super interesting, but it's been nice to have it be less a barrage of like way too many like other people's ideas and just like one interesting one where I can, you know, just kind of <laughs> yeah, it's one like of the reasons why I like my own little yeah. content bubble and not have so many differing opinions at all times. It's one of the reasons why I like writing Twitter threads every once in a while because you can really get to that next level that you can't do on a TikTok. And sometimes I'm trying to bring content or topics from the podcast onto TikTok, but I'm trying to keep it short enough where the audience will stay engaged. And it's actually yeah, really and then difficult you're like, to do. What do I pull out for the right. short? <laughs> yeah, my brother's been editing my podcast and it's been super helpful because he's, oh, I picked this one out. And it's nice to have someone like external that's okay this is the part that stuck out the most to me and he'll usually pick what he's told me is he picks out moments where I ask like how did you do this question or like how did this make you feel and so I think the emotions and then the tactical aspects were the things that we've taken out the most for sound bites also it's like way easier to make a title for them (laughs) that's true all right going back into venture capital so what are some of the books that you would recommend like the top five go-to books for venture capitalists or beginning fund managers sure i'm trying to 
thing. I'm reading one right now that's actually like a Wiley textbook. I forgot the name of it, but it's like the business of venture capital, I believe. And the next one would be venture deals, a class. I have to shout out Seed to Harvest. Yeah. This is like <laughs> the children's book that I read about venture, which was super helpful. I actually wrote it like before I started investing, but this is like how a venture investor evaluates a company and then the different like team structures. Anyways, that's number three. But I honestly think that reading a lot of fiction books was more helpful for venture than like specific venture books that I read because I think a lot of venture is about evaluating people and like founders. And so reading a lot of fiction books where you're running yourself through a lot of like emotional simulations a ton and like seeing how different people make decisions and like how previous life events correlate with like how they operate now, I think has been incredibly helpful. So books about like psychology and fiction books have been really awesome to read. And one of our investors, Judy Eshern wrote this really amazing book called Closing the Innovation Gap. And I think it really contributed deeply to how I think about early stage funding as it relates to innovation. Her whole argument was basically like the U.S. defense industry used to fund a lot of basic research, which is like unapplied. But as soon as the funding moved more into the private sector, companies were forced to commercialize really early on and show revenue. And that led to only incremental increases in technology versus overall like zero to one leaps in innovation. And so I think that's something that I think about more deeply as an investor since I read her book. So I would definitely recommend. She's incredible mind. She's like the former CTO of Cisco and she helped invent one of the big protocols for email and she's awesome. Yeah. Gotcha. I took a note of those and I'll definitely make sure to check those out. I think I also just ordered today the business of venture capital to start delving into that a little bit because I think there's going to be some pretty interesting topics in there. But yeah, so before you got into venture capital, you were building syndicates. What was that journey like and how did you go about doing that? Yeah, I actually just recorded a podcast episode about it. It'll be coming out on Monday, July fourth. (laughs) I don't know what Monday is, but next Monday. Yeah. So my journey in the syndicates, like I was coming out of college. I didn't have that much capital, but I was finding these deals that were just like incredible founders I really wanted to work with. And at the same time, I was also building like social capital with this community of folks that followed me on Twitter and were interested in my insights on venture. And so I was like, Oh, why don't I connect the two? And I actually didn't think about how the how to do that until my friend suggested asking this founder that had reached out to me about community and content and like, you know, consulting. He reached out to me and pitched me like the idea that he was working on. He was like, what are your thoughts from like community and content perspective? And I asked him, I was like, can I please have allocation? I love what you're working on so much. And I think that you'll just blow the recruiting industry out of the water. And that company is coming called Palette, which is community oriented job infrastructure. And so That first syndicate deal, I got allocations. You get allocation before, and then you, I would recommend having investors commit to your syndicate deal before you start with a legal framework, just in case if it doesn't go through, then you can wind things down without paying like two and a half grand for spinning up an SPV. Right. But I worked with a company called Assure, their fund administration team, and they helped me spin up my first SPV. Landon Ainge over there was just incredibly helpful because I hadn't done one before and he answered all of my questions and was just super supportive in the journey. So I 
got the allocation. And then I started pitching folks that I had met through Twitter on the opportunity and ended up raising around 60K in two weeks. And that's what started. This all was like being able to build a track record. You know, I, I came from a state school. I did not come from like generational wealth. I didn't really have that much of a background in venture, but syndicates allowed me to build a track record that led to me building behind Genius Ventures. So it was a really powerful step in my journey. And now we do them for the fund as well for some of the follow-on rounds the companies are raising, but I'll always reflect fondly on my time raising syndicates before I did the fund. For sure. And then when we're taking a look at the broader economy of a whole, we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, but we're starting to see later stage rounds being cut by around a quarter for series A, B, and C. What are you seeing in the early stage markets? It honestly hasn't corrected that much. I would say, I think that some pre-seed and seed deals are coming down in valuation. I think that there are still deals being priced at like 30 to 50 at the seed. But I think that there is a return to focus on getting to revenue much earlier. And so I think that's been interesting across our portfolio. We've seen folks that are raised more like operator rounds to get to like higher revenue targets before an A because the A multiples have come down. So I think that's been one of the most significant changes is we've been seeing more operator rounds so that folks can catch up to the valuations that are happening at the A's. And then I would say there's just been a significant pace shift. And I think a lot of fund managers are focusing on their existing portfolios right now. I was talking to another fund manager yesterday and he was saying he was spending about like 80% of his time with their existing portfolio, making sure that they're thinking through like, how do they get to default alive? Even if they have two years of runway, how do they stay alive after that period of time? Because, you know, you can't, you probably will go through a bunch of pivots as a early yeah. stage founder and you don't know how long that they're going to take and how long the hypotheses that you're trying to test will take. And so thinking through those from a really strategic point of view, I think that's one of the nice things about speaking with your investors about it and just having them run you through the different options for what could happen in the future is having that dedicated strategic time where, okay, I'm fully present and I need to think about this right now versus I think it can be really easy. I mean, I experienced this like running our fund is it can be really easy because you always have like different tasks at hand, but like setting aside the the strategy time to think about how you can be long-term default alive. So I would say those are the significant shifts that we've seen so far, but we're still seeing a lot of really great deals. I think there's some really great companies that will be built during this time period. And a lot of folks are considering what their second act will be. You know, it's, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how everything plays out. I'm not much of a macro market person. (laughs) I'm like super early stage, like people first. So yeah. Got it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You know, even for example, the company Fast, they were burning through a bunch of money. And I think we're starting to see those later stage companies, like you said, they're really coming down in valuation. We're starting to see Uh, more focus on revenue and cash flow. Yeah. So this is the crazy thing. A lot of that was driven by like venture incentives at the later stage. There was this crazy shift. Harry Stebbings just had this really great partner from Excel London come on and she was talking about it. But it was basically like VCs at the beginning of COVID were like, all right, like cut, burn, do layoffs, yeah. <laughs> squash that. And then capital got super cheap and all this money was flooding into the economy. And then VCs were like, grow at any cost, keep going. And then now there's an additional correction as we're seeing inflation in the market. And now VCs are like, 
cut costs, like <laughs> get to default alive. And that's like within such a short period, right? It's been like yeah. two, two years and you're having to make these like significant strategic shifts in your company. And so I think that there are definitely going to, you know, already seen it across the board, like significant changes in companies and it's super unfortunate, but I think that the yo-yo environment has definitely been difficult for CEOs to navigate as well, because ultimately like those are the folks that are going to be leading their next fundraising round. Yeah. So they're as, as much as they like are want to be independent, there is some responsibility to their investors in terms of listening to that advice. And also that's their eyes and ears into the market above them when they're running their company. So as we wrap it up here, what are some of your takeaways for first time fund managers? I think one is just leaning into your conviction of investing as a fund manager yourself. I think when I first started, I didn't have that high of a confidence level in some of the back office stuff and just like going through as I was talking about earlier, like going through the motions and actually like making investments, sending wires, fundraising, like going through the motions is what will build your confidence. And there's very few things that will be able to replicate that. So it's totally normal to feel nervous and also know that there's like a large community of other fund managers who have gone through those same emotions and have come out the other side. So we're always here to support folks that are going through that because I I remember how scary it felt and hopefully I can help have folks make fewer mistakes <laughs> than we did. But yeah. Yeah. And going back to your point earlier about the macro environments, I think we're start, we were expected to see that there would be some sort of downfall because in 2020, the only reason why it, the markets and the economy rebounded was because the Fed pumped trillions of dollars in the yeah, economy. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And they <laughs> wouldn't take their foot off the pedal, which led to ridiculously high inflation and Brutal. all sorts of other problems in the economy. So I think now this is a time where we're going to start to see the longer term. They don't have any other policy they can use to pull us out. So I think this is where we're going to see the longer term impacts, which is why we're starting to see VCs to say, hey, you should focus on cash flow and make sure you're reducing your burn and uh, all that other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the it's interesting to see like the pace is dropping though. Like people are spending a lot more time getting to know the founders that they're looking to back. And I think just in general, the round timing is increasing, which I think is contributing significantly to the drop in deals. Because before in previous quarters, you had deals getting done in like average of 24 hours. And so deal volume at that rate really significantly contributes to the amount of capital deployed. But as you have everyone hitting and saying, hey, we're going to pause our investments as we recalibrate, that also contributes really sharply to a drop in deal volume because there's just not the number of deals that are being done. For sure. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to hop on the podcast today. It's been a pleasure and I hope to have you back in the future. Yeah, likewise. Thanks so much for having me on, Jameis.